Amen. Hey, you guys go ahead and grab a seat. Welcome to Harvest. My name is Trey. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor. And if we haven't met yet, like Danny said, um, we'll be um, on the other side of the wall, the curtain, um, after the service. And I'd love to meet you. Um, We have been in a collection of talks called The Path. And what we've been doing is starting at the transfiguration of Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew, leading up to Easter and ultimately his resurrection. We've been looking at this path that Jesus has been on. Um, where he will, again, ultimately lead to his resurrection and ascension. And what we're doing is we're looking at that, and how can we take note from Jesus's path and his ultimate purpose and parallel it and apply it to our lives, which is our path and our purpose here on this earth. And along this path, along this thing called life, there's a lot of questions, what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to marry? What are, we, are we supposed to move? Are we supposed to stay? Do I take this job? Do I not take this? Like, what am I supposed to do? And there are a lot of questions. I'm sure many of you even now are facing some questions that you just don't know how to wrestle with or answer. But I think the most important question in our journey, in, in, our, in the, our time on earth, I think the most important question that you and I have to ask ourselves is this one very important question. Who do you think Jesus is? I think if we can answer that question, it will drastically change how we go about our life. And at the end of the day, when we breathe our last breath, where we will spend eternity. If we can answer the question, who do we think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? Is he a good person? Is he a good prophet? Is he a teacher? Is he a good moralist? Is he a revolutionary? Who, who is Jesus? Is he a legend? Is he a myth? Is he just some guy? Who is Jesus? C.S. Lewis once said this, either Jesus is a lunatic, a liar, or he is or he is who he says he was. He's either a lunatic, he's crazy, or he's a liar, he's incredibly brilliant in capturing thousands of years before him and perfecting every prophetic word about this Savior and living it out to, to, to the truth and, or to some way, shape, and form he fooled people in it. Or he actually is who he says he was. Those are the only three options. But there is historical evidence to say that there is more historical evidence to prove that Jesus actually walked to this earth and was a real person than there is historical evidence to prove that George Washington was a real person. We have more documents, more literature, more stories, more historical evidence that Jesus existed than George Washington existed. So we cannot deny that Jesus was a person on this earth. But who is Jesus? Is he who he claimed to be? Is he crazy? Is he a liar? Or, again, is he he who he says he was? The whole purpose of kind of this study is to kind of highlight along this path that Jesus actually is who he says he is. And we're going to be in John, the book of John this morning. So if you have Bibles, flip there, phone swipe there. Neither, it'll be on the Sky Bible for you, a.k.a. the screens. Um, but we're going to be in the book of John this morning. The whole book of John was to highlight Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the Savior, Jesus as God. 
So in the book of John, we end up on this scene in John chapter 18. Last week we looked at the Lord's Supper, and um, the past of our me- the past um, couple of messages are on our podcast and Spotify account. If you want to go get caught up, go back there. But um, in the book of John, we come upon upon this scene in John 18. Jesus has just had the Last Supper. He's just or gave communion with his disciples, and he's explained some things that they really can't wrap their heads around. They're still having questions, and Jesus has explained, you know, the temple's going to be destroyed, but in three days' time it will be rebuilt. What is he talking about? Is he talking about an actual infrastructure? No, he's talking about himself. And he's, again, he's explaining things, and these disciples are having a hard time comprehending exactly what he's talking about. But regardless, he says, I'm going to close in prayer, but I need to get away for prayer. So guys, let's get up off this table, let's leave, and let's go to this, this place. Let's get away and, and pray. So he leaves, and he takes them on a walk where he wants to spend some time in prayer. And this is where we pick up in John 18, verses 1 through 11. It says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus told you, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew, back, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall not I drink the cup that my father has given me? There's a lot to unpack and, and there's a thousand different ways you can go with this message but the direction I want to go this morning, and if you ask Trey, what is exactly happening in this story? Let me say it like this. When I was in eighth grade, uh, our church, we hosted this big student summit. Um, we had about five to 700 students, middle school and high schoolers, every year come, and um, they, it would happen all day Thursday and all day Friday and then end Saturday morning, but it was a student summit, and so we'd have guest speakers come in, we'd have different worship teams come in. Um, we would have, you know, carnivals, like, out in the church property. Like, it was a big deal. And, one, and they started this thing, they started doing dodgeball tournaments uh, when I started to go to these student summits. And, um, you know, when different churches from in town would come in, like, we'd see their youth group and be like, oh, we hate them. Like, oh, it's West Side. Like, like it would be like, they were, we were enemies, right? We had no foundation of, you know, of the theology of the church or anything like that. Uh, so we knew, like, we didn't know that like, we were all on the same team. We just thought they go to a different church. They're the enemy, right? Like, that's how we viewed them and thought about it. And so we would go up against our rival youth groups in dodgeball. And so there was this one year where I came up with a team that is still being used to this day at my church for the student summit. Not, not a big deal, but we were called Bunnies in the Meadow. 
Couldn't tell you why. I just came up with it as an eighth grader. If you know, if you've ever been around an eighth grader, you know their mind makes zero sense sometimes, and that was me. I just came up with a name. But I gave this rallying speech in eighth grade. I looked at my teammates, all of us eighth graders, right? And I was like, guys, we can do this. And I looked at them and I said, what do winners do? What do champions do? We rise to the occasion and we went out and we lost. But that was my speech every year. And I became a youth pastor and we took our students to different youth camps and we had a pretty athletic youth group, and we would win all of these competitions. You know, at the end of the week, they're like, and the winner of the three-on-three basketball tournament, Trinity Baptist Church, and the winner of the volleyball tournament, Trinity Baptist Church. And the, and, but I would give this speech every single sporting event. Guys, you belong to Trinity Baptist Church. <laughs> and what do we do? And they go, we rise to the occasion. I'm like, and don't you forget it. <laughs> right? Like, that, that was a speech, and that was like common, not like, hey, what do winners do? What do champions do? The other night, me and my wife love to play Uno, just one-on-one, right? It's like a thing we like to do. Um, I will majority of the time win. It's not even a real competition, but I do win most often than not. Um, and I just constantly tell him, like, hey, babe, what do winners do? What do champions do? Like right before I'm about to lay down the, my last card, my wife like throws the deck of cards at me. We're working on it. Um, but... Uh, I'm like, winners, they rise to the occasion, babe. Last card, boom, I win. Right? There is this thing of, and it's true in all of sports. You think of clutch players. You think of moments where the game is on the line, and it can either go one way or the other. What do clutch players do? What do champions do? What do winners do? They rise to the occasion. And here in this story and in this moment, in this scene in the garden, Things are going to go one way or the other. And there needs to be a champion to step forth. And Jesus steps up in the garden. And what does he do? He rises to the occasion. He steps up in this moment. In John 18, Jesus tells the disciples, let's get away to go and pray. Judas has already slipped away from the group. Uh, because he knows where they're going. He's gone to get soldiers and priests, and he's gone to get some religious leaders. And if you've ever stopped to ask, like, what is their beef with this guy anyways? Like, you read this all throughout Scripture of, like, they're constantly trying to trip him up. They're constantly trying to arrest him. They're constantly trying to, uh, like, tarnish his name and his reputation. Like, at some point, there's a little bit of obsessive behavior between the religious leaders and Jesus, so why, do they, why were they so out to get him anyways? Well, I think a couple of things. Number one, he claimed to be God. He also made claims that he was their savior, the Messiah. He, he opened the doors to non-Jewish people to be saved. He called out their hypocrisy. Just a couple of reasons. But if you've ever stopped and asked yourself, why were these people so bent on getting Jesus? That's why. But regardless, Jesus takes the remaining 11 to a garden to pray. And while Jesus is praying, the disciples fall asleep in this garden. But this is not just any garden that the disciples fall asleep in and Jesus takes them to. He, calls, he takes them to this garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, why this is important is because this garden uh, is, this Gethsemane garden is an olive press. It's a garden of, full of olives. And so what they would do was 
they would take these olives and they would put them in this press and they would roll this giant stone across them multiple times until there was no oil left or juice left in the olives. It, it bled them dry. So I don't think it was an accident that Jesus took his disciples to a garden of crushing. For we know in the, in the gospel of Matthew that when Jesus gets to the garden, his disciples are asleep. He's doing time with God. He's praying to God. And he's, call, he's calling God, God, if there's another way to do this, if there's another way to redeem humanity, the cross that is set before me, God, my cup, it's overwhelmed. I don't know if I can do this. God, is there another way to do this? And the Gospel of Matthew says that Jesus was so overwhelmed, so weighty, so crushed by this moment, he was sweating drops of blood. And we do know this, like we talked about last week, it was Jesus' bloodshed on the cross that would satisfy the wrath of God. And so before the bloodshed is even on the cross, bloodshed is being shed in the garden due to the crushing. So the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Crushing, is not an accident. And the story goes on in Matthew that God told Jesus, no, this is the way. And a big theological thought that I, I just want to put out there really quick, if the Trinity, God three and one is true, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and they cannot disagree with each other, that means all three of them came to the unanimous decision. That doesn't mean, so sometimes we think, Jesus, you know, the father told Jesus he has to do this. Jesus didn't want to do this. So there was this little bit of a disagreement in the garden. It was no of like the father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are all in this moment of, is this what we want to do? It is because they're worth it. So all three of them unanimously in agreement with one another, God said yes. When if that case is true, then John chapter 18, who's the champion that stepped up? Was it the prophet? Was it the teacher? It was God. So if you don't take anything away from this message, I want to help you answer this question that we asked at the beginning. Who is Jesus? In this garden, who is Jesus? Jesus is God, and he stands alone. Jesus is God, and he stands alone. Alone, There was no one like him. He is the only God. And Jesus was God and is God. John chapter 1 says he spoke everything into existence. The spiritual entities, Satan and his followers, the demons, the angels, none of them are gods or deserve our praise or fear for they were created by Jesus. He has no rival. We are not the crowd up in the stands biting our nails, looking at our economy, looking at our country, looking at the world going, which, are, which one will win? Will it be God or will it be Satan? Which one will win? That's not who we are. For God has already won. The plan here and the message here in the garden is that our undefeated champion of heaven knew that without him we couldn't win. And the significance of this, remember, if you remember, that it was in the first garden, the Garden of Eden, that man fell, sin entered, and the curse, punishment was given. And it was in the first garden that shame and guilt made Adam and Eve run and hide. But it was in this garden where the greater Adam, Jesus, steps into the light as innocent. Shame made Adam and Eve hide. Jesus, being innocent, steps into the light, 
ready to embrace the punishment of the sin that we brought in. For only God could answer his own justice according to his standard. This is the plan. And let this plan, let this moment remind you of a truth that I think we so often forget. That God's plan will always be accomplished in his perfect way and in his perfect timing. God's plan will always be accomplished in his perfect way and in his perfect timing. When you look at this story, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook, and there was a garden which he and his disciples entered, and now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. And then Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers, and there were some people coming up against Jesus. Why did Jesus want to get away? Why did, why did he want to go to a garden? There's a lot of people, and I, and I have to agree with this, he did not want to cause an uproar amongst his followers that lived in the city. For there would have been an uproar. So he went to the garden with his 11 to get away and make this a peaceful moment. And Judas brings in a band of soldiers. What that means is not just like, what, like 10 or 12 soldiers? No, it means a band of soldiers. It, it can be translated like this. He brought in 500 Roman soldiers. Some people would argue it's 1,000, but the safe bet is 500. 500 Roman soldiers. Think about the threat they thought Jesus was. Think about how much hatred and bitterness these Jewish people had towards this man. So they have this plan to overwhelm him. They had this plan to make accusations towards him. Where? In the lights where everybody can see it? No, in the middle of the night where nobody can question it. And they think that this is their plan. But it is not. So, because verse 4 it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Look how calmly Jesus walks up. There is no, Guys, guys, wake up. Wake up. We gotta get out of here. Let's go. Let's go. He's, he's not shaking his disciples like, Peter, get your butt up. Right? There is no panic in his voice. There's no like, Guys, we gotta go. We gotta go. There's no escape plan. Jesus, knowing what was going to happen, knowing this far in advance, before he can even see the lights, before he can even see the torch lights or hear the armor clanking, he knows they're on their way. And he walks out and he meets them. He stands in front of the boys. And he met them and he asked, whom do you seek? Why are you here? What is your purpose? What is happening? You know what's interesting? In John chapter 6, verse 5, this is what happens. Um, Jesus is about to be, he has, he's really popular at this time, and so these people want to crown him. And so perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So in this, in this part of John's passage people love him so much and they really do think he's the king to overthrow rome so they're like we're about you're king you're our king and jesus is like not, not not in this way so he withdrew himself and got away he fled a crown to make him king of israel but he walked up to embrace a crown of thorns and a cross he ran the crown that man was going to put on him but he walked towards the crown of thorns that was going to save man by the wrath of the Father. This was his plan. How different this plan looked from the one the nation of Israel believed would happen. How often do we have plans? 
and those plans don't happen and we lose faith. Rather than trusting and believing that sometimes the soldiers, the overwhelming odds against me may actually be in God's will and plan for your life. Trusting and believing that this will work for your good and for his glory. Remember that God has a plan and his plan will always win and it will always play out in his perfect timing. For here's the thing, for here's the thing, here's the reason why this happens. Because the power of God is always evident and man, but man just has a record of denying it. The power of God is always evident. Man just has a funny way and a record and a, and a habit of denying it. Who are you looking for? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. He says to them, I am he. If you look at the original language, that word he and a lot of other translations, it doesn't have the word he. He says, I am. To quote God in the burning bush when he's talking to Moses. To say, I am the God of Moses the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God you've been looking for and waiting for, I'm him. Who are you looking for? We're waiting on the Messiah. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And that probably didn't sit well with the religious leaders who are already out to get him. He says, I am. I am. In John chapter 18, verse 6, it says, And when Jesus said this to them, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. When Jesus says, I am, notice they did not fall forward on their knees in worship and humility. Jesus goes, I am. And I don't know if it was a mighty wind. I don't know if it, the ground began to shake or if just the Holy Spirit just knocked them on their butt. But here's what we do know. Jesus says, I am. And 500 to 1,000 Roman soldiers However many priests and Pharisees and Sadducees were there. Judas, the accuser, the traitor, all of them fell on their back. They didn't fall forward in worship. They fell on their back. This was to demonstrate the power and the hand of God, and yet they refused to acknowledge that Jesus was more than a man. But isn't it wild just at the mention of his name, the enemy cannot stand? What power that is. He stands alone. My dad is a pastor of a church up in Jacksonville, and he had a, um, a couple weeks ago, they had a demon-possessed man walk into their church. And I'm not going to lie to you, I was a little jealous. I was like, I really want that to happen here, but like, it is what it is. Um... <laughs> I asked him, I was like, what'd you do? He goes, well, we didn't do anything. He said, we decided to like take some time and pray about it. I'm like, nah, man, you got to get in there. Like, like, let's go. Like, that's a, that's a moment. Um, and uh, here's one thing that happened though. He came to, he came forward and, um, and that, that stuff is very real. That's not in the movies. That's not Hollywood. That, that is, that stuff is very real. And I don't like to joke about it or anything, but um, this man came up to my dad at the end of the service, or at the beginning of the service, and you can just tell. If you've ever been around that kind of stuff before, it has a hold on people. There's lifelessness in people's eyes. There is a heaviness when they get near you. 
Um, and so this individual came near, and my mom has never been around that stuff, but my mom in explaining it to me, and I've, I've lived in Togo, West Africa, where that place is, is rampant, and she was like, it just felt like weighty. I'm like, yep, I know exactly what you're describing. And so uh, my dad said, can I pray with you? And the guy says, no, you can't. And my dad was like, I'm going to pray for you, and put his hand on him, and the guy just ripped his hand off of, or my, he ripped my dad's hand off, and he was like, why'd you do that? He goes, well, I didn't. So there was this, there was this back and forth a little bit, and so the guy stayed in the service, and there was, there was this internal wrestle of this demon that lives within this guy, and this guy's soul who's longing for deliverance, and there's this battle of this guy, this, that no demon would draw this guy to church. <laughs> no demon that lives within this guy is going to be like, hey, I'm really going to mess this guy up. Let's go hear about Jesus, right? Like, that's not what a demon would do. But this guy's soul longed for salvation and redemption and, and, and deliverance. So he ended up in church, and there's this internal battle, and they started to sing the song where the name of Jesus is mentioned over and over again. The first song they sang, it didn't mention the name Jesus. It just said God. And the man just stood there, and my dad tells the story, and then the second they sing a name or a song with the name Jesus in it, this guy, you can see him start to get uncomfortable. And then they say Jesus again, and he begins to get uncomfortable to the point where he leaves. He comes back the night, and it's been this back and forth journey. But what's interesting about that is that the name Jesus makes the enemy retreat. The name Jesus has power in it. There's something powerful and significant about his name. I have another buddy of mine who uh, was a Satanist. He led his own little cult. He was the leader of that Satanist group back in Jacksonville. And um, he said when he was in that group, uh, he said, I, I asked him, like, hey, dude, kind of, he's, he's funny enough, he's a youth pastor now. But I was like, what, like, why don't like Satanists hate these different other these other different religions? And he just looked at me and he said, "Dude, I'm gonna be honest with you. In the Satanist church, Islam not a threat. Buddhism not a threat. Works by, faith by works not a threat. The only." enemy we have are those who proclaim the name of Jesus. Because that's it. Because I, we don't care about other religions at all. They're no threat to us. But the churches and the Christians who proclaim the name of Jesus and Jesus alone as a source of salvation and deliverance, because that's the only threat to, our, to what we do. And it was that name, and it was that, that actually drew me to, if that is our threat, why is that? And it led me to years of seeking out the truth, which eventually led me to understanding the gospel and putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so it was the enemy that drew me in, because if, but what kind of an enemy is that? Right? Most enemies come to destroy, but if Jesus is the enemy and he sought out the enemy to learn more about his enemy and his enemy won him over, that's the lovingness and goodness and grace and mercy of the God, Jesus, that you and I serve. For he sought him out to learn how to use that against him, but when he sought out Jesus, Jesus did not crush him. He wooed him in with his love, grace, and mercy. 
and the power of God was at work. And so while they were down on the ground, it would have been a perfect time to escape, but Jesus stayed. And he watched these soldiers get up. And again, he asked, who do you seek? And they repeat this back and forth. They do if I'm a Roman soldier, I'm not going to be like, Jesus of Nazareth again. I'm like, Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know. Jesus of Nazareth. Well, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> right? And they say, and like, Jesus of, Na- of Nazareth. And there's this trepidation, but again, an unwillingness to admit that the reason they were throwback was because of the power of Jesus. And as much of this passage is that Jesus is God and his power is unmatched and unrivaled, it also points to the ignorance of man. That they see God's hand working, but they are more eager than ever to deny him rather than repent and embrace him. The relentlessness of individuals who are looking to deny Jesus, the lengths they will go to to disregard his hand on the earth and even in their lives. So 500 soldiers get back up along with their religious leaders and they are still surrounding Jesus and the 11. And no doubt the 11 are looking at this make or break situation. Jesus just showed his hand. He just showed his power. And here's what we do know thus far in following Jesus that he's always had a way out. He's always, he's always had an escape plan. He's always had this. He's always had that. It, it, everything he said thus far is going to happen. I don't see a way out of this. We're surrounded. It's 11 verses at minimum 500. And these are not warriors. These are teenagers. These are fishermen and a tax collector not the macho of macho men. And they're looking at this Jesus, this guy that they've been following, standing in front of them while they're probably in the back, knees shaking a little bit, surrounded by 500 going, we're not going to win this fight. But if Jesus is God and he stands alone and his plan will come to pass and his power is always evident and at work in our lives, let me close with this. Your fight might be too big for you, but it is not too big for God. John 18, verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. He made sure that those who follow him would be set free. And notice he didn't ask a question. If you could just let these men go, he said, and you will let them go. It was not a a bargain. It was not a question. It was a command. This was not the miracle they were expecting. They were expecting Jesus to go and turn away. Go, get away from me. I am God. I speak. Jesus goes, and you're going to take me, but you're going to let them go. Can you imagine the 11 for a moment? Or the 10 at this point? Just... What did he just say? Like, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. What? What did you, Jesus, what? You're leaving us. But I I don't understand. 
Jesus. Peter, I love Peter, sees Jesus surrounded by hundreds of Roman soldiers and priests that are making these accusations. Tensions are high and he senses, this is my make or break moment. You and I have never been put in this situation. Can you imagine this moment though? Soldiers surrounding you. Torches pointing at your Savior. And you see your Savior for the first time in the light. And he's got, already has blood on his face for some reason. You're like, what, what, what just happened? Did he get like walk through thorns or whatever? Like, I, I don't understand what is happening. And this whole moment of they walk up and they're like, who are you looking for? I'm looking for Jesus. And I am, I am Jesus. Boom, fall on their backs. And they're like, and then he, they get up and who are you looking for? Jesus, I am he. And you're going to let these boys go and you're going to take me. Hold up. So Jesus in this make or break, or Peter in this make or break moment, it says that he pulls out his sword and he lunges at the closest person beside him, the servant of a priest whose name is Malchus, who at some point I was like, dude, what did I do? You know, he lunges at him, most likely to try to kill him, decapitate him, badly injure him, aiming for an ear, really, but if you can just put the pieces together, he lunges at him. Malchus leans away. He gets his ear cut off. No doubt all 500 of the Roman soldiers unsheath their swords, point their spears at the ten. But just imagine this moment, this weight that these ten disciples are feeling. Here's Peter. And sometimes we think that all the disciples hated Judas from the beginning. No, Judas was their brother. They did spiritual warfare with this guy. They walked and cast out demons with this guy. They walked and saw and fed the 5,000 with this guy. They walked and did miracles with this guy. They went city to city with this Savior, this Messiah, with this guy. And here stands Judas on the other side of these 10, these 11 individuals, including Jesus, going, and that's him, the fake and these disciples are like, what are we going to do? Jesus, what do we do? And Jesus looks at Peter. And he goes, put your sword away. Jesus, we got to fight. Peter, put your sword away. This is not your fight. No, but God, we're going we're gonna to take on the 500 and you will lose. But this is what happens, people. There is an assignment against your life from the enemy. And it may feel like people are against you, but here's what the enemy does. The enemy uses people to discourage the people who follow Jesus. The enemy uses people to try to accomplish his plan. Why? Why does the enemy hate humanity so badly? You know, it's often said, you know, the level of hardship and the level of the battle that you're going through equates to the level of purpose that you have in your life. I don't believe that. I don't buy into that. 
I don't. I just, I just know that there's a real enemy out there who hates all of humanity. For whose image are you made in? And for whom does God love? It's you. And your very existence is an image of the man, of the, man the enemy hates. And so there is an assignment against your life to destroy your life, to discourage you. For if he can get God's own image to go against him, that's a win in the enemy's book. And there is an assignment against your life to discourage you, to disrupt you, to dismantle you. And this is what we do. This is what we do. We we unsheath our swords anytime we feel pressed, anytime the hordes of hell comes against you or our family. And we say, we're going to try harder. We're going to white-knuckle our way out of this predicament, out of this moment, out of this sin, out of this temptation, out of depression, out of anxiety, out of generational sin, out of whatever you're walking through. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to pray better. I'm going to sing. Jesus is just saying, Stop. Put your sword away. You are no match in and of yourselves. You're no match for sin. There's not enough in your character and integrity to withstand the tile and temptations of this world. For even if you're doing it out of hatred towards the enemy, James 1.20 says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. For everything we do amounts to nothing apart from the love and grace of Jesus. So Jesus in this moment is saying, let me do what you cannot do for yourself. For in this moment, Jesus' word did more than man's sword. How tired are you? How scared are you? How overwhelmed are you with constantly having to know how this plays out? The mountain in front of you is too high. The valley's too dark and too deep. And I, I just can't keep doing this. And you're right. So step back and let Jesus, the God of the universe who stands alone, do what you cannot do for yourself. Try. how do I do this? What does that mean? That's a, that's a big statement. Let God fight when you can't fight and trusting that his plan. And it's, it's, it's a lot of faith. That's what you're saying. What's the vending machine number where you're like, if you do this and this and put your money here and then it'll blow up and then you'll be prosperous. And that's how you know the favor of the Lord's upon you. How should I lead my kids this way? How should I do this? And what's the promise that this will all work out? The promise is that God's on the throne. And it takes faith. We're people of faith. So how do, how do I let him do this? I think, number one, you trust him. Just trust. And that's not a cop-out Christian statement. There's a level of this where you have to look across at your spouse at the dinner table every once in a while and be like, I just need you to trust God with me on this. And I don't know how this is going to play out, but I need you to trust him because I'm trusting him. And I don't know what this is going to lead us. I don't know what this is going to do, but I trust him. And then listen to him. Read his word, follow his word. Listen to him. Why? Because the enemy does. The enemy has to listen to him. We should listen to him. And number three, rest in him. Be anxious for nothing, 
but in everything, go to God in prayer. So we trust, we listen. And in that listen, I could add and live out. And finally, we rest. Because my job's obedience, God's job is the outcome. And I'm going to rest in that. Will you? Will you trust that on this path of following Jesus, that Jesus is not just some good man and when there's a fork in the road, we're going to trust our own opinions, our own revelation, our own thoughts, our own whatever. We're going to let our past life determine our, our future decision. Or are we going to look to heaven and say, you're God, this is you. What do you want me to do? You're God, this is, this is this situation. What do you want me to do? You're God, and you stand alone. And I trust and believe that in my marriage, that in my family, in my decision-making, that you've got a plan. And I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to see your power at work. And when I feel like this fight is too big for me, I know it's not too big for you, so I'm just going to trust you, live for you, and then rest in the outcome because you got this. Is that the story of your path? If not, let me encourage you to let it be. Let that be the story of your path. Who is Jesus that you follow? Ah, oh, he's just some whatever. No, he's God and he stands alone and I trust him with everything. Every head bowed, every eye closed, really quickly. If you don't know Jesus this morning, understand this, that this fight that we're talking about, yes, it has to do with earthly issues, but there is a bigger issue at play here. There is an eternal issue at play that you and I could not win. And Jesus steps up in front of the enemy, in front of the Father, and says, God, take me instead. And he did. So that way you and I could know where we will spend eternity. And if that's you this morning, you don't know where your eternity hangs. Your eternity hangs in the balance. I want to let you know that there's a champion who rose to the occasion, who stepped up in front of you and for you and died on the cross for you and rose again for you. So that way, when you, you never have to see the grave. That when you breathe your last, you are with him in eternity. And if you never put your faith and trust in Jesus... I'm going to give you an opportunity to do so in this moment. So if that's you this morning, you say, I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus, and I want to follow Jesus, I want to live for Jesus, and I need that rest in Jesus because my soul is so overwhelmed and so anxious of me trying to fight my own life for my own life, then repeat this prayer after me. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I love you. I'm thankful for you. And I admit that I am a sinner. I am not perfect. And the standard of heaven is perfection. And I confess and believe that Jesus lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, so that way I could enter into heaven. And I believe he is who he says he was, did what he says he did, and I put my faith and trust in you. Thank you for your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. If that's every head still bowed, every eye still closed. If that's you this morning. We just don't know how we can pray for you. If you made that decision that this morning, this internal decision, would you just raise your hand? 
just so I can know how to pray for you. And anybody in the room like that? Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Anybody else this morning? I put my faith and trust in Jesus. There is no doubt anymore. I know the purpose of my life. Anybody? Yeah. And for the rest of us, it's a simple truth, but it's a revolutionary truth. Jesus is God and he stands alone. That's our God. So no matter how bad things get here, we know that his plan will be accomplished. He can redeem all things and it will ultimately work for good and for his glory. Would you stand with me? Jesus, we love you. We're thankful for you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. You are great and greatly to be praised. You are God and you stand alone. The enemy knows what is on the other side of our remembrance and obedience. So God, let us put our trust in you and let us let you fight for us. For you have never lost. And our response is to proclaim, to worship, and to obey. So Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, give us the strength, the passion, the desire, the reminder to do so. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.